Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 24th, 2014. I have a few words tonight before we begin. We're going to um, finish our presentation of the Book of Acts tonight. First, let me say that if Yahshua Christ is not Yahweh God himself manifest in the flesh, then either Israel has more than one God and the entire Bible, Yahshua Christ, and Yahweh God himself are all liars. Or, if Yahshua Christ is not God at all, and the, apost the, the, and the apostles Thomas, John, Matthew, and Paul, as well as the prophet Isaiah, and Yahshua himself in the Revelation, are all liars. If Yahshua Christ is not God manifest in the flesh, then he cannot be the first and the last. And he cannot be the root of Jesse as well as the branch. If Yahshua Christ is not God manifest in the flesh, then he is a liar when he takes credit for having sown the good seed into the field of the world. If Yahshua Christ is not Yahweh God manifest in the flesh, then he cannot be our Redeemer because Yahweh is our Redeemer. I am your Redeemer. Besides me, there is no other or else the prophet Isaiah once more is a liar. If Yahshua Christ is not God manifest in the flesh, then he who saw him did not see the Father. And then he and his Father are two rather than one. But the prophets and the apostles are not liars. God does not lie. The things Christ did as a man were for our example, because God walked the earth not as God, but as a man. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means they shall say of him, God is with us. He walked the earth as a man so that he could be a righteous judge of men. As the Apostle John said, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That flesh that the Word was made into, and the Word was God, and the Word was made into the man known as Yahshua Christ, Emmanuel. He is the Word, and therefore he is God. If your so-called Christian identity pastor is denying that Christ is God, then he is a Jew and a beast, and he is not really a man at all. If his last name is November, it proves everything that I said about him last year. He certainly is a Jew and a beast. There are three important truths that separate our work, and the Christian profession represented at Christogenia 
from all of those who hate us. And that includes all of those who are supposedly identity Christians who hate us. These three truths are these three facts. That Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh God in the flesh. That the Bible and its promises of eternal life and the kingdom of heaven are for Adamic people exclusively. And therefore, all of the world's bastards and all of the world's so-called other races cannot possibly ever see it. And finally, that all, all Israel shall indeed be saved. Everyone else will go to hell. With that, we shall proceed with our presentation of the book, the book of Acts, chapter 28. The end of Acts chapter 27 left us at the end of a shipwreck, <clears throat> as after several days of struggling through apparently early winter storms, the ship carrying Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus is finally run aground on an island. The nature of the wreck indicates to us the size of the ship, as it evidently could not get very close to the shore since the men on board of it had to make a swim for it and they were not certain whether they could even make it all all make it safely one manuscript the codex vaticanus tells us that there were 76 people on board and the codex alexine and alexandrinus tells us 275 however the preponderance of the manuscripts tell us that there were 276 men on board the ship some of these were crewmen, and some were soldiers in the company of the centurion Julius. There were, ostensibly, more prisoners on board than the three which Luke names, which are perhaps himself, maybe he only named two, and, and didn't count himself as a prisoner, but to me it's evident that he was a prisoner. We'll never have proof one way or the other, I don't think. The others are Aristarchus and Paul, who he explicitly says are prisoners. We can imagine the possibility that Luke was a prisoner, as some of his language indicates, but he never explicitly tells us that he is. While in his second epistle to Timothy, Paul seems to infer that Luke's presence with him was voluntary, that is not necessarily the case. <clears throat> Although Rome certainly seems to have been much more liberal in its attitude concerning public contact with prisoners than the modern tyrannies are, it seems that Luke would never have been able to have been Paul's constant companion throughout this ordeal if he were not also a prisoner. In any event, Acts chapter 27 is a further illustration of the providence of God in the lives and actions of man, which is an underlying theme throughout the narrative of the book of Acts, and, of course, Acts chapter 28 continues to teach that same lesson. Acts chapter 28, verse 1. And arriving safely, after they all had to swim in from the ship, which, which was run aground, it, it was run aground, but it was still, it was a large ship, so it didn't reach the shore. And after arriving safely, we then learn that the island is called Melita. And the barbarians exhibited no common kindliness to us, 
for igniting a fire. They assisted all of us on account of the pressing rain and on account of the cold. It's been storming. It's been storming for quite some time. The Codex Vaticanus has Melitina rather than Melita, which may be easily dismissed as a scribal error. It probably should be. Today, the island is called Malta. And while it is mentioned by Strabo in his geography in books 6 and 17, he does not say much about the place except that from there come the little dogs called Melitaean. These Melitaean dogs, also mentioned by Aristotle and Ahelian, were kept as pets and were probably akin to some of the modern European lap dogs. Yeah, that's men have had, and, and women, I guess, have had lap dogs for many centuries. The University of Pennsylvania Museum has examples of a Greek vase from the 5th century BC which depicts a Maltese dog. I'll put a link to it with the notes to this program. Malta was also famous for honey, and the name Melita comes from the Greek word for honey, which is meli, and Melissa is a honeybee. The point in illustrating the domestication of these Maltese dogs and their appearance through throughout ancient Greece and Rome is that even though these people were called barbarians by Luke, they were certainly not savages as we would picture the use of the word. It, it just wasn't used like that at the time. They would be called barbarians only if they did not speak Greek and share in Greek customs. Liddell and Scott defined the word barbarous as not Greek, foreign, and while in the Augustan age the name was given by the Romans to all tribes which had no Greek or Roman accomplishments, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that Luke used the word here. A barbarian was simply somebody of a foreign tongue. And so the word does not necessarily imply that these people were aboriginals or savages or non-whites. In fact, they were indeed white. Diodorus Siculus says of, of Melita, which is the modern Malta without a doubt, it's described in, in, in several of the ancient Roman writers and, and Greek writers, that it lies about 800 stades from Syracuse. That now, that's perhaps 78 miles, and, and Syracuse was the famous city on the southeast coast of Sicily. And it possesses many harbors which offer exceptional advantages. And its inhabitants are blessed in their possessions. For it has artisans skilled in every manner of craft. And the dwellings on the island are worthy of note being ambitiously constructed with cornices and finished in stucco with unusual workmanship. This island is a colony planted by the Phoenicians, who, as they extended their trade to the Western Ocean, found in it a place of safe retreat since it was well supplied with harbors and lay out in the open sea. And this is the reason 
the inhabitants of this island, since they received assistance in many respects through the sea merchants, shot up quickly in their manner of living and increased in renown. How many times have um, people read this chapter in Acts and, and thought maybe these people of Malta were black savages with bones through their noses? It, it, they, they were actually very highly cultured people. Diodorus wrote <clears throat> over a little, a little over a century before Paul's voyage, and from his account, it is evident that Luke used the, the word barbarian to describe these people in the linguistic sense and certainly not in the cultural or, or in, in, a, in, in a disparaging ethnic sense. Verse 3. And upon Paul's gathering some number of sticks and setting them upon the fire, a viper coming out from the heat attached to his hand. Luke doesn't tell us whether any others from the shipwreck were assisting in the fire building. However, it is evident that his narrative is nearly always focused upon Paul. This passage is explained once it is realized that Paul's eyesight was very poor. Paul's condition was mentioned in his epistle to the Galatians in chapter 4 where he says, Now you know that in sickness of the flesh I had announced the good message to you earlier. And in my trial flesh you did not despise or loathe, but as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. He who accepts you accepts me. Then what is your blessing? I testify to you that, if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. There we learn that Paul's eyes were the cause of his trial in the flesh. Then at the end of the epistle to Galatians, in Galatians 6.11, he writes in his own salutation, as he did in many of his letters, but there he asks, Do you see in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? In that manner, he confirms the earlier testimony of his poor eyesight. The epistle to the Galatians was written several years before Paul's voyage to Rome. Wanting to help, Paul lifted a bundle of sticks and placed them into the fire. A viper, surely from that same bundle of sticks, and which Paul did not see because of his poor eyesight, then sprung out from that bundle and attached itself to Paul, thereby avoiding the fire. So... Uh, the Paul bashers have really criticized Paul for this one, and there's absolutely no reason to criticize Paul for this one. It, it shows that the Paul bashers will go to any length to tear apart our scriptures. And they do so out of a lack of understanding, or perhaps out of purposeful treachery. As an aside, I once walked out of the fire and had a viper attached to me. He still does talk to you on another channel. And as the barbarians saw the beast hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man is absolutely a murderer, who passing safely through the sea, justice does not allow to live. The Maltese saw the snake bite as a punishment from a god and a retribution for some terrible crime, imagining that even though Paul escaped the shipwreck, he would not escape justice. Verse 5. 
So then, shaking the beast off into the fire, he suffered not any evil, but they were expecting him to be about to become swollen or to suddenly fall down dead. Yet upon their long expecting and observing nothing wrong happening to him, instead they said for him to be a god. The Greek word metabolo, which appears only here only here in the New Testament, is literally to throw into a different position, to turn quickly, to turn about, to change or to alter. Tellingly, this is the, and this is another parenthetical statement, tellingly, this is the only place in the New Testament where a change of mind is ever recorded. Here the word appears as a participle for which Liddell and Scott explained it. The participle is used absolutely, almost like an adverb, meaning instead or in turn. The text may be read, changing their position or changing their minds, they said for him to be a god. In certain truly anti-Christian circles, Paul has been criticized for this account. The Paul bashers again, right? Which is grossly unfair, even if he had control of how it was written. Some have criticized Paul for being attacked by the snakes, and snakes do not tarry in burning fires. Well, the snake jumped out of the bushel of sticks, or, or the bundle of sticks that Paul himself picked up. Quick to find contention, they are ignorant to realize that. Others have criticized Paul for the natives having imagined that he was a god, as if he could also control their thoughts, simply because there is no record of Paul's denial. And because there was no record of Paul's denial that he was a god does not mean that the denial did not exist. In fact, in a very similar manner, the natives of Lystra, of Lycaonia, who were also pagans, also imagine Paul and Barnabas to have been gods. As Luke records the incident in Acts chapter 14, after Paul and Barnabas had miraculously healed a lame man. However, in Lystra, it is fully evident that Paul and Barnabas found it a disgrace to be considered a god. And they denied the assertions of the natives emphatically. There is absolutely no reason to believe that Paul's attitude in this respect would be any different here. Rather, Yahweh God provided yet another miracle that would facilitate the spread of the gospel to the people of Malta by the hand of Paul. There is also another dynamic here, which is language. The natives being called barbarians by Luke Evidently, Luke did not understand their native tongue, as Luke was a Greek. However, Paul was a learned speaker of what the apostles all referred to as Hebrew. Whether you want to think it was Aramaic or not is immaterial. The apostles called it Hebrew. And later... And, and I'm sorry, and, and their language, the Hebrew language, was also the language of ancient Tyre. The Tyrians, as it can be shown in classical histories, such as Herodotus, were the mother city and had a strong relationship with the Carthaginians all the way down 
through the Persian period and beyond that. Paul may well have been able to talk to these barbarians in their native tongue and Luke didn't even understand what was going on. Verse 7. And among those about that place, referring not to the entire island, but to this area of the island, was an estate which belonged to the leader of the island named Poplius, who receiving us kindly, hosted us for three days. Poplius is the Greek form and, and also the archaic Roman form of the common Roman name Publius. Whether Poplius himself was a Roman or not cannot be told. If, he's not a, if he is a Roman, he's appointed the governor by Rome. If he's not a Roman, it may indicate a, a strong Roman influence on the people of the island. And, and we see that wherever the Romans and the Greeks are. The population was generally Phoenician, however, Malta was under Roman rule. The word for leader which Luke employed is only protus, which means first, foremost, or superior. It is not a designation of office, so it's difficult to tell if the man was an official appointee. Verse 8. And the father of Poplius was laying down, having been stricken with fever and dysentery, to whom Paul, entering into and praying for, laying the hands upon him, cured him. And upon this happening, then the rest of those in the island, having sicknesses, came forth and were healed, who also honored us with many honors, and setting sail provided for the things necessary, meaning they were well supplied when they set sail from the island. Ostensibly, surviving the snake bite and the resulting esteem it gave Paul among the natives also gave him an introduction and an opportunity to perform these further wonderful works, which would then lead to the spread of the gospel. That was the purpose of the miracles in the apostolic age. Where Luke says, upon these things happening in verse 9, and then in the next sentence in verse 10, he says, and after three months we set sail. We should see that such language as he uses here in verse 9 is not immediate in its scope, as we often assume it to be in our English-speaking minds. Therefore, in other places in his writing, where he uses phrase similar in meaning to this one, where he says, upon these things happening, neither should they necessarily be interpreted as if they were immediate in scope, but subsequent to the, to the event mentioned. Verse 11. I'm sorry, I should have, uh, I should have used ver verse numbers 9 and 11 in my illustration. And after three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship which had wintered in the island with the ensign of the Dioscori. And landing in Syracuse, we stayed three days. So Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus sailed into Rome, or, or into Italy at least, on a ship that had an insignia which meant sons of God. That's what the word Dioscori meant in Greek. 
And that is quite ironic. However, from the pagan perspective, the Dioscuri, more literally interpreted as sons of Zeus, were Castor and Polyduces, or Castor and Pollux in Latin. Castor and Pollux in legend were the twin brothers of Helen of Troy, and they were worshipped by both the Greeks and the Romans. So, so we see the, the, the pagan perception. At one time, Syracuse was the most powerful city of Magna Graecia. As southern Italy and Sicily were referred to as Magna Graecia in the Persian and the Hellenistic periods. It was founded in the late 8th century BC by Dorian Greeks, primarily from Corinth, some of them evidently also from Tenia. In ancient times, they had great wars with both the Etruscans and the Phoenicians. The Peloponnesian Wars, and then further wars with Carthage throughout the 4th century BC, took a great toll on the city, and thereafter it declined. It enjoyed a short revival in the late 3rd century until it was besieged and taken by the Romans, circa 212 B.C. Its most famous inhabitant, arguably, is probably the mathematician, inventor, and philosopher Archimedes. Verse 13. From which coming around we arrived in Region. The term coming around is a reference to Sicily, and Syracuse was on the southeastern shore of the island, while Region, or Regium, was on the mainland, at the very tip of the toe, on the imaginary boot of Italy, east of Sicily, and almost directly north of Syracuse. And after one day, upon the south winds coming, on the second, we came to Patioli, or Patioloi, where finding brethren, we were exhorted by them to remain for seven days, and thusly we came into Rome. Putioli, as the King James has it, the modern Pozuoli, Pozuoli, I guess, P-O-Z-Z-U-O-L-I, is the name of a modern city, is a short distance west of Nathan, about halfway to Rome from Regium. While Luke writes that we were exhorted by them, meaning the Christian brethren that they found there, to remain for seven days. They were still prisoners, as the verses which immediately follow remind us. The circumstance described here makes manifest the fulfillment of the statement which Paul made not long before the shipwreck, where describing a vision he experienced, he attributes this admonition to a messenger of Yahweh which states, Do not fear, Paul. It is necessary for you to stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all of those sailing with you, Acts 27, verse 24. Here we see that Paul and those with him, although they were prisoners, were able to tarry for a week in Patioi, where the centurion 
must have been willing to afford them that time. Therefore, it is manifest that the centurion, and most certainly the soldiers with him, according to the vision in Acts 27, were indeed persuaded to Christianity through Paul and the experience which they had suffered in common, along with the testimony of the many things which Yahweh had done through Paul on Malta. So it's evident if the, the centurion, who actually has great obligations in his office, is persuaded by Christians of Palioloi to tarry with his prisoners for seven days, that, that, that is a great testimony to the to the well, well the biblical fact because the word of God does not fail that he was indeed converted to Christianity nevertheless the men had worldly obligations he was still a Roman centurion and in in due time those obligations had to be fulfilled verse 15. And the brethren, from there, hearing things about us, came for a meeting with us as far as the Apios Forum, and the three inns, whom seeing Paul giving thanks to Yahweh, took courage. Often called the Forum Apii, which is a closer to a transliteration from Latin, Apii being the genitive case, the Forum of Apios. The Apios Forum was about 43 miles south of Rome along the Apian Way, which was a famous road, and was a connecting point with the canal which ran through the Pontine Marshes. The place was described by Horace, who reportedly said, that it was full of boatmen and cheating innkeepers. It would have been filled with boatmen because of the canal traffic. And cheating innkeepers, so the three inns, we see what they were famous for. By this we may imagine the reference to the three inns to describe a place where there were actually three inns, at least. That there are, dis that there are disputes over the the exact location of the three inns or three taverns, as they were called in Greek and Latin, from the words which are the origin of our English word, tavern, the disputes are found in all of the various Bibles and commentaries which, which attempt to describe this, that this passage. The disputing sources place the three taverns at any one of several points somewhat closer to Rome along the Apian Way than the Forum itself. There are other references in ancient Roman literature to the three taverns, and there were also other places in Italy known by that name. Verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was permitted to remain by himself with the soldier guarding him. Now the majority text, in concert with several other medieval manuscripts which also have the interpolation, I didn't see any which, which I recognized as dating before the 9th century. They had this verse to read, 
And when we came into Rome, the centurion handed over the prisoners to the military commander, but Paul was permitted to remain by himself with the soldier guarding him. All of the ancient codices, the Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, that they agree with the reading in the Christogenian New Testament, or, or the Christogenian New Testament agrees with them, let's put it that way. It is evident from Paul's epistles that Aristarchus was with him and was his fellow prisoner. That's in Colossians chapter 4. And that Luke was also with him. For at least a great portion of the two years that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, if not for all of it, where Luke says that Paul was permitted to remain by himself, Luke's narrative style was always to focus on the central character, and we cannot rule out that Aristarchus and Luke himself had also remained with him, with his guard also. If we can determine the order in which Paul's epistles are written, from the circumstances which seem to be displayed within those epistles, and we'll talk about this at length at the end of tonight's presentation, in Ephesians, Paul does not mention anyone in his company. Later, in 2 Timothy, Paul states that only Luke is with him, but indicates that there were others in his company who had departed. In Colossians, Luke and Aristarchus are with him, as well as Timothy, Mark, and others. Therefore, the circumstances clearly changed over Paul's two years in Rome, and we cannot obtain most of the details, but we'll try to flesh out some of them in his epistles. We shall discuss these epistles again shortly. Verse 17, And it came to pass that after three days there were summoned to him those who were leaders of the Judeans. If Paul were alone with the soldier, meaning by himself, solitary. While it is still possible, it is nevertheless difficult to imagine that he could have done this so quickly or that Luke could have recorded it so precisely. Rather, Paul may have had others with him, Luke and Aristarchus at least, and therefore in verse 16, Luke may have only been distinguishing Paul and his company from the other unmentioned prisoners who were with them on the voyage. There, there were ostensibly other prisoners. Luke never tells us how many, but focuses his narrative on Paul alone. To continue, And upon their gathering, he said to them, I, brother man, or literally I, comma, men, comma, brothers, doing nothing against the people or the customs of the fathers, have been delivered captive from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who examining me wished to risk me because of there not being any guilt of death in me. But upon the Judeans speaking in opposition, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not as if having anything to accuse my nation of, Therefore, for this reason, I have summoned you to see and to speak with you. For because of the hope of Israel, I am wrapped in this chain. Paul had defined his use of the term Israel. And the substance of this hope in his address to Herod Agrippa, 
as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, where he said, And now for the hope of the promise having been made by God to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, that's what he means by Israel, serving in earnest, night and day, hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans. So we see that Paul was the minister of the gospel to a genetic Israel, the twelve tribes of that same ancient family, which are our fathers. Tribes, fathers, that must be genetic. He was not the minister to any substitute so-called Gentiles. However, in his epistles, in places such as Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul taught, that the gospel was being carried to the nations which had indeed descended from those same twelve tribes and the truth of that is made manifest in the study of both the Old Testament and classical history. Those who don't know it despise it because they're too damn mentally lazy to find it out to do the reading necessary. Paul did not say in either this passage or in Acts chapter 26, that the hope was to be shared with the world or with Gentiles or with strangers. And his meaning of the Greek word for nations must therefore be applied as he described it in Romans chapter 4 and not as innovators would describe it. Paul defines the nations to whom he brought the gospel in Romans 4 as those nations in which Abraham believed. Abraham didn't believe in niggers. Abraham didn't believe in Chinamen. Abraham believed that those nations which were promised would come from his loins. Paul defines those same nations in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Israel. The King James has after the flesh. It's Israel according to the flesh. Israel kata sarka. That word kata is according to in, in countless places throughout the King James Version. Israel according to the flesh. Literally, in the Christogenia New Testament, Israel down through the flesh because that's what kata literally means. The nations practicing paganism were Israel according to the flesh the ancient dispersion of our twelve tribes as opposed to Israel in Palestine Israel well some of those people were Israelites but most of them were Israel in name only they were Edomites Canaanites there is no profession at all of what is now known as universalism 
in any of Paul's things. There's no replacement theology. There's no spiritual church. The church of God, the ecclesia of God, is made up of Israelites, genetic Israelites, who live in the spirit and worship him. That's spiritual Israel, as Pastor Mark Downey defined it last week in the Christogenia Forum. That's how we should look at spiritual Israel. Those Israelites who believe God and worship Him, but they're genetic Israelites first. Verse 21. But they said to him, We have not received letters from the Judeans concerning you, nor have any of the brethren arriving reported or spoken anything bad about you. Now in Luke's records, we are never explicitly told whether anyone had stood against Paul in the court of Nero, or whether Paul was tried on the basis of whatever it was that Festus must have written to Nero concerning him. Much later, where after Paul withstood his first trial, before Nero, he wrote his letter to the Philippians. And Paul mentioned only those who had contended with the gospel and spoke against Christ. He doesn't explicitly tell us that those people stood in Nero's court and spoke against Paul. He also mentions that trial at the end of his second letter to Timothy. But we don't know if they explicitly showed if, if they showed up to explicitly testify against Paul. Well, we're not told that. Verse 22. But we think it worthy to hear from you the things which you think, since concerning this sect, Christianity called a sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And indeed, approximately 11 years before this time, and we had spoken about it, I believe, in Acts chapter 18, around 49 A.D., the Emperor Claudius issued a decree expelling the Judeans from Rome, which the Roman historian Suetonius tied to this very dispute amongst the Judeans, where he said in his Lives of the Twelve Caesars, in the portion on Claudius, part 25, or the book on Claudius, I should say, since the Judeans constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which must have been a reference to Christ. He expelled them from Rome. This agitation of the Judean Christians by those Judeans who for one reason or another still oppose Christ must have affected these Roman Judeans whom Paul addresses here. Verse 23 
and arranging a day with him, many came into the lodging to him, to whom he, affirming the Codex Alexandrinus has explaining there, exhibited the kingdom of Yahweh, and persuading them concerning Yahshua, both from the law of Moses and the prophets, from early evening. And indeed, from early until evening, I'm sorry, and, and that's a literal translation of Luke's Greek, from early until evening. And indeed, some were persuaded by the things being spoken, but some did not believe. Here it is evident once again that the purpose of the gospel to separate the wheat from the tares was in the first century. Once more, and, and until today, it still does. <clears throat> Once more, here in Acts, the false Jew versus Gentile dichotomy advertised in the denominational sects is shown to be false, as it has been throughout the book of Acts, where here it explains that some were indeed persuaded by Paul and some were not. And we see that in every Judean assembly which Paul entered into. We have seen this in all of the assembly halls that Paul visited, that many accepted the gospel. And they were Judeans, and many rejected Christ. And that those who rejected Christ persecuted those who accepted Christ. Verse 25, and not being in agreement with each other, they were released upon Paul speaking one word. That word may also be perceived as a thought, so we could call it a sentence. Well, did the Holy Spirit speak through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers? The, the majority text has our fathers there. Saying, you must go to this people and say, Hearing you shall hear, and should by no means understand. And looking you shall look, and should by no means see. For the hearts of this people are grown fat. The Codex Sinaiticus has made heavy there. And with their ears they hear with difficulty, and their eyes have closed that at no time should they see with the eyes and hear with the ears and understand in their hearts that they should repent and I shall heal them. The Codex Laudianus has may heal them or should heal them. Paul's words, as they are recorded in verses 26 and 27 here, are a quote of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. There are many of our more simple-minded identity Christian brethren who would interpret these words to apply exclusively to the enemies of Christ. But they were not that they were not supposed to understand his words. And while in part that is true, it is an oversimplification of the original intent the message. In order to understand this passage properly, we must consider what is meant 
in Isaiah's time when the words were originally written. Here we shall read the chapter, it's a short one, from Isaiah, so that we may see the original context in which the words were spoken. These are important words because they're, they're actually also cited twice by Christ as it is recorded in the Gospels, and we'll discuss that also. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah, the king of Judah, died, I saw also Yahweh sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then I said, Yahweh, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And Yahweh have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and in it shall return, and it shall return, I'm sorry, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is them, is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Now that verse 13, I've studied the Hebrew to that, and I would translate it a little differently. We're just speaking about the remnant of Judah which would return to the land after it was left forsaken. And I would translate it to say, yet a tenth will return and be kindled, a pillar of oak, in order to be a monument, because of their felling, the holy seed will be a monument. I had attempted to explain this same thing in a somewhat different manner in my Matthew chapter 13 presentation. We know that from the prophet of Jeremiah, for instance, from chapters 2 and 24, 
And also from Ezekiel, for instance, from chapter 16, that Jerusalem at the time of the prophets had a mixed race population, much like first century Judea later also had. And for that reason, Judah was deemed by Yahweh to consist of both good and bad figs. In truth, Judah had bad figs from the beginning in the children of Shelah, his son with the Canaanite woman. Yet Isaiah, in giving this prophecy concerning blindness, was talking to the people of Judah in general, and not to any specific group among the people. In our uncleanness, we ourselves do not deserve the truth of the word of God as we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5 through 7. The prophet himself imagined that he did not deserve as much. Therefore, it is clear that a lot of us, as well as our enemies, are to remain blind as to the purposes of our God. The example here is primarily that Yahweh himself chooses out from among his people who shall see and hear and learn his truths. The rest of the people, whether they be his or not, Israel or not, they remain blinded for as long as it is determined by him. As the Apostle James says, the devils know that there is one God and they tremble. The children of Israel who do not heed the word of Yahweh are then, when they are called to hear it, if they do not heed it, those he relinquishes to the enemy. For that reason, Paul, speaking of unrepentant sinners, instructs us to turn such men over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their spirits may live in the day of Christ. This idea that even the people of Yahweh remain blind in order that his will is fulfilled, is first expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles, yet Yahweh has not given you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. The children of Israel were delivered from Egypt in spite of themselves, and so it shall be at the end of the age. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 5, of his book explained the iniquity which resulted from the idolatry committed by the children of Israel and then later in a chapter he says declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah saying hear now this O foolish people and without understanding which have eyes and see not which have ears and hear not fear ye not me Saith Yahweh, will ye not tremble at my presence, which have 
place the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it. And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it. But this people has a revolting and a rebellious heart, and they are revolted in God. That's basically the fulfillment of Isaiah's statement in Isaiah chapter 6. Likewise, or one fulfillment of it. Likewise, from Ezekiel chapter 12, from verse 1, The word of Yahweh also came to me, saying, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, we have another record of, the, of one fulfillment of the words of Isaiah 6. Now the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are relevant to the people of Judah in Jerusalem before they went into Babylonian captivity. However, the lessons taught in those books clearly reflect the source of iniquity of Israel and Judah as being connected to their acceptance of the Canaanites and the idolatry, adultery, and fornication which resulted from that acceptance, which is the message of Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 16. All these things are connected. The chapter divisions didn't exist in ancient times. Just because the chapter changes, does that, that doesn't mean the topic and the subject changes. There are many other passages in those same prophets which reflect these things. Isaiah, Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity, to know her abominations. Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. That's where the abominations came from. From Jeremiah 2, we could read the whole chapter. I'll only pick out particular parts. Hear ye the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Has a nation, I'll skip to verse 11, has a nation changed their gods which are yet not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. For my people, verse 13, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 20. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands and now said, I will not transgress, meaning he took them out of Egypt and freed them from the tyranny there. I will not transgress, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Yet I planted thee a noble vine, Holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate 
plant of a strange vine unto me. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. How can you say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after Baalim? Verse 25, Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. But thou said, There is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. The people of Israel and Judah in ancient times were blinded in their idolatry, having accepted the Canaanites and their gods, something which they were warned would happen to them when they failed to destroy the Canaanites. This is explained in Numbers chapter 33. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land where you dwell. Later, after they did indeed fail to drive out, the Canaanites, the children of Israel were told in Joshua chapter 23, take good heed therefore unto yourselves that ye love Yahweh your God, else if ye do in any ways to go back and cleave unto the remnant of those nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you. That's what's going on a thousand years later in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but shall be snares and traps under you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until ye perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. The strange slips which came from out of the pleasant plants of Israel described in Jeremiah chapter 2 were the broken cisterns and those who bore an iniquity which could not be cleansed. Those are the people who resulted from the race mixing with the Canaanites that Yahweh warned Israel about in Joshua chapter 23. The blindness, I'm sorry, it's about 900 years apart. The blindness of the eyes of the people, both the good figs and the bad, in the time of Jeremiah, were the result of those same Canaanites being among them and being thorns in their eyes, which we see in Joshua. That's simple. However, the people of Judea at the time of Christ had once again taken all of the Canaanites into their polity, both into their government and into their religion. Over 100 years before Christ was born, the high priests at the time of Christ and many of the rulers and chief men of the Judeans were Edomites. They were not Israelites. Therefore, once again, and in like manner, the 69th Psalm speaks prophetically about the blindness of the people in direct relation to the suffering of the Christ. From verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, 
And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually shake. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded, and add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. The early history of Christianity is the persecution of him whom thou hast smitten, meaning Christ. Likewise, upon his encounter with Yahshua, Paul was asked, Why do you persecute me when he was persecuting Christians? Furthermore, on more than one occasion, Yahshua Christ himself had quoted this same passage of Isaiah in reference to the blindness of the people of Jerusalem when he preached to them, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13 and in John chapter 12. In Matthew 13, after speaking of the blindness of the people and quoting the same passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, Christ was recorded as having then taught a series of parables which are all related to the issue of race the parable of the good seed which is corrupted by the wicked and choked by the thorns, the parable of the mad and the good and bad kinds or races of fish, the word kinds being genos, which means race, and the parable of the wheat and the tares, among others. Yet where Christ quoted the same passage again as it is recorded in John chapter 12, it is even more revealing when it is seen in the context that the Apostle portrayed it from verse 37. Now having made so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, which says, Yahweh, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For this reason, they have not been able to believe, because again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. They should not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and turn about that I shall heal them. Isaiah said these things because they had seen his honor and had spoken concerning him, meaning Christ. Yet likewise, even many of the leaders believed in him, but on account of the Pharisees, they would not profess it, lest they would be expelled from the assembly hall. For they cherished the honor of man more than even the honor of Yahweh. The enemies of Christ were the same enemies of God in the Old Testament. The Edomites and Canaanites who infiltrated Judea, just as they had infiltrated ancient Israel, and were identified by Jeremiah as bad figs. These enemies of Christ had gained political control of Judea nearly a hundred years before the time of Christ. As it is evident in John chapter 12, the people of God, who are the bedfellows of God's enemies, would rather keep the comforts of their lives rather than risk the comfort, those comforts for their God. Their going along to get along was a reflection of that blindness which facilitated the crucifixion of Christ, but which resulted in salvation for all of Israel, 
Israel is blind because they accept the persons of the ungodly, which the 86th Psalm abrades the children of God for doing, where it asks, How long will you accept the persons of the wicked? Once again, Israel is delivered in spite of themselves. However, those Judeans who continued to reject the gospel of Christ after his crucifixion, they were eventually all consumed by the bad figs of Judea, good seed choked by the thorns. And they eventually all became race mixed with the Canaanites and Edomites. The words concerning blindness refer to the children of Israel. The Canaanites, the devils know there is one God and they tremble. They wanted to kill him because they knew what his works were doing. Verse 28, Therefore it must be known by you that to the nations is this salvation of Yahweh sent, and they shall listen. The majority text inserts at the end of this verse, the text which has become verse 29 in the King James Version, but which is not included in the Christogenia New Testament, because it's not in any of the ancient manuscripts, and it reads, And upon his saying these things, the Judeans departed having a great dispute amongst themselves. Paul is not telling the Judeans here that the gospel was being sent to the nations because the Judeans rejected the gospel. That's not what he's telling them by any means. That is an innovation of the universalists. Many of the Judeans here accepted what Paul had said. In truth, Christ had commissioned the apostles nearly 30 years beforehand to bring the gospel to the nations, as it is explained in Matthew chapter 28, and also by the apostle John in John chapter 11, where he mentions the children of God who are scattered abroad. Rather, the gospel was sent to the nations because the nations to which the gospel was sent were indeed the dispersed nations of the children of Israel, who were reconciled to God upon the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that is what Paul taught in all of his epistles to those nations. However, Paul did not teach that. He did not teach the gospel of Christ in that manner to the Ionians and Athens in Acts chapter 17, or to the Lycaonians in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, because those nations, Ionians and Lycaonians, were not of Israel, and therefore it is manifest that the gospel is not intended for non-Israelite nations. He spoke to the Lycaonians and to the Ionians on broader terms in reference to to God's relationship with Adam and with Noah, not with Israel. Furthermore, 
The fact that the gospel was therefore sent to the nations does not ever preclude that the fact that those nations to whom it was sent were indeed the dispersion of ancient Israel. As Paul attested in Acts chapter 26, the hope for which he struggled was the hope of the twelve tribes. And the remnant of Judah at Jerusalem was just that, a mere remnant. It was 800 years before Paul's time when the vast majority of the people of both Israel and Judah were carried off into Assyrian captivity. They only left behind the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And roughly 640 years before Paul's time, the remainder being descended only from those inhabitants of Jerusalem who were left behind by the Assyrians were carried off into Babylonian captivity. The people of Judea were descended only in part from a small portion of this later group, which had returned in the Persian, of, in, in the Persian period in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Even long before the Assyrian captivity, many Israelites had departed from the main body of the nation and had emigrated to Europe and other destinations. From as early as the time of the Exodus, Israelites were founding colonies abroad, from among whom sprung the Romans and many of the Greeks. Not all of the Greeks, not the Ionians, but many of the Greeks. The Dorians, the Danans, those Greeks descended for the most part from the Phoenicians. The Greeks of Thebes, many of the Greeks of Thessaly. We can't imagine Hutus, Tutsis, yellow Chinamen to be among those people. They certainly weren't. All of this can be proven in the Old Testament, which tells us where the children of Israel are, in Isaiah especially, and in classical histories. Verse 30, And he abode for two whole years in his own hired house and received all those coming into him, proclaiming the kingdom of Yahweh and teaching the things concerning Prince Yahshua Christ with all free spokenness unhindered. We have a few things to talk about yet. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of Yahweh as Luke defines the expectation of that kingdom at the beginning of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 and this hasn't changed. He records the apostles as having asked the risen Christ, Prince, that at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. Luke's record of Christ's answer does not deny that the kingdom would indeed be restored to Israel, but only that when that would happen is not for the apostles to know. It certainly shall happen, as the words of Christ himself attest in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Presenting Acts chapters 18 through 20, we discussed where Paul had written each of the surviving epistles which were written when he was a free man. Originally I said it was seven. I have to confess I erred and it was eight. 
doing that, doing that presentation, I missed the epistle to Titus, having taken my own failed memory for granted. From the end of Titus, where Paul explains that he decided to enter in Nicopolis, it is evident that this letter was written as he departed from Ephesus and route to Macedonia to visit there for the second time in his ministry. At Acts chapter 20, verse 1. For some unknown reason, Paul had hoped to find Titus in the Troad, and when he did not, he sent for him which is evident at the end of the epistle and in an epistle which Paul had written a short time later in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's having left Titus in Crete, which he explains in his epistle to Titus, must have occurred at a much earlier time, and the only opportunity seems to have been during the trip that he made to Caesarea and Antioch, which is mentioned in Acts chapter 18, verse 22. This also seems to lend further credibility to the idea which I express presenting Acts chapter 18, that Titus is the justice, as the King James reads, the Titus Eustace as the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Laudianus have in Acts 18.7. The Codex Vaticanus has Titius Eustace, the name Titus with the addition of one letter, the I. Titus Justice, Acts 18.7, Acts 18.7, that's Titus to whom Paul wrote his epistle whom Paul had ostensibly, because Luke doesn't explain it, the Acts 18 is very terse in many places. Paul must have taken him and left him in Crete and wrote him later. The events in Paul's ministry at this point are very sparsely recorded. We see people mentioned in the epistle to Titus, Zenus and Artemis, who were not mentioned anywhere else because this history in Acts chapter 18 is so sparsely recorded. I apologize for the oversight missing the epistle to Titus when I presented Acts chapter 18. However, it serves to justify many of the assertions made throughout this series that the book of Acts is a very incomplete books, book and only parts of the history which it incompletely narrates can be filled in from the epistles of Paul. Titus was with Paul in Rome at some point before 2 Timothy was written where Paul states that he had gone off to Dalmatia and Titus is not mentioned again. The first epistle to the Thessalonians was no doubt the earliest of Paul's surviving epistles and was written in Corinth. The second epistle to the Thessalonians followed the first in short time and was very likely also written from Corinth. The epistle to the Galatians was written during Paul's stay in Antioch which is described in Acts chapter 18 verses 22 and 23. 
where he also had his final meeting with Peter, described in Galatians chapter 2. It could not have been written before that time. Paul visited the Galatians soon thereafter, and his epistle reflects an anticipation to visit them in its fourth chapter. The epistle, which we know as 1 Corinthians, was written from Ephesus during the three-year period that Paul stayed in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19. The epistle to Titus was written to Paul as Paul journeyed from Ephesus, was written, I'm sorry, it was written to Titus by Paul, as Paul journeyed from Ephesus to Macedonia through the Troad, and the second epistle to the Corinthians was written a short time later, as Paul journeyed from Macedonia to visit Achaia for the last time, before he reached Corinth for his final visit there. He wrote that epistle in advance of his visit. The first epistle to Timothy was written from Greece around the same time, as the circumstances indicate in conjunction with Paul's own comments at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Finally, the epistle to the Romans. was written from the Troad during Paul's stay there described at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, which is evident from both the lists of men who were with Paul provided in Acts 20 and Romans 16, and from Paul's comments concerning his ministry and his plans to visit Rome, which were made in Romans chapter 15. The other six of Paul's surviving epistles were all written while he was in bonds. Five of them from Rome, and one, the epistle to the Hebrews, was ostensibly written while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea. Hebrews was written from Caesarea, or Timothy, as well as Aristarchus, would have been mentioned as going with Paul to Rome. Timothy was released, Hebrews 13.23. Paul went to Rome without Timothy, but Aristarchus was still a prisoner with him, and Luke was also with him, and was possibly a prisoner. I believe he was, of course it can't be proven, except by the circumstances and, and Luke's use of the, of the pronoun us, where, where he describes the centurion's boarding the prisoners into the ship, and he uses the word us. Now, it cannot be taken for granted that we have or that we know about all of Paul's epistles. There are at least two that we know are missing. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul mentions a previous letter which he had written to them, which is apparently now lost. In Colossians 4, 16, one of the letters written from Rome, we see that Paul had also written an epistle to the Laodiceans, and Laodicea was not far from Colossae in Anatolia. They were fairly close in proximity to one another, those two cities. The epistle is also lost, the epistle to the Laodiceans. It would not be fantastic to imagine that Paul had written many more epistles during his ministry and all of them are now lost. I'm surprised the Jews aren't finding one every other day just to fool Christians. I probably shouldn't give them any ideas. 
There were two letters written from Rome before Timothy was with Paul. These two letters are Ephesians and, of course, to Timothy. Ephesians was written from Rome. This is evident in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul explained that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And we see that Paul is a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians in Ephesians 3.1. Tychicus had brought that letter to Ephesus, which we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. And he brought it to Ephesus before Paul wrote to Timothy. Because we see in 2 Timothy 4.12 that he says that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Tychicus must have went to Ephesus because he was carrying the epistle to the Ephesians. It's that simple. Perhaps the full armor of Yahweh prayer at the end of the epistle to the Ephesians reveals that Paul had not yet defended himself before Caesar, something there was no mention of in the epistle, but that he was about to do so. He wrote that, put on the full armor of Yahweh, and, as prayer as a manner of, of edifying not only the Ephesians, but probably also himself for what he was about to suffer. To Timothy was written from Rome after Paul had offered his first defense of Christianity. This agrees with his statement that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus ostensibly with the epistle to the Ephesians in hand. Now this certainly seems to be the case. However, it cannot be explained why Aristarchus was not mentioned where Paul said, only Luke is with me, even though that doesn't rule out Aristarchus in Paul's use of, of, of such statements in many other places. He, he may have been mentioning only Luke in a certain context. It must also be supposed that Demas had returned to Rome after Paul told Timothy that Demas had forsaken him in 2 Timothy, since Demas is again with Paul when Colossians was written later. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we could refer to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9, 11, and 13. Paul asks Timothy to come to Rome and to bring Mark with him. Now, Paul and Mark, I'm sorry, Timothy and Mark had not been with Paul since he was arrested. Ostensibly, they're not mentioned, even though it's evident that Timothy was arrested with Paul because Aristarchus was arrested with Paul. And if Paul says in Hebrews, Timothy was released, Luke doesn't mention anybody at all being arrested with Paul until what we can infer that meaning when Luke tells us in Acts chapter 27 that Aristarchus is a prisoner, and of course he's Paul's fellow prisoner in Colossians. He's with Paul on a trip to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 27, Luke tells us finally that Aristarchus is a prisoner with Paul when they get on the boat to Rome. Timothy, if Paul already wrote his letter to the Hebrews, Timothy was already released from imprisonment. In 2 Timothy, Paul asks Timothy to come to Rome and to bring Mark with him. Mark hadn't been mentioned since the, the, the split with Barnabas. 
except for I think Mark may have been in a Troad with Paul, if I'm not mistaken. In the other surviving epistles which Paul later wrote from Rome, it is evident that Timothy indeed complied with Paul's request and came to Rome. Those surviving epistles are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They're the last three epistles we're going to talk about because they're the last three epistles we have. We've identified all the others when they were written. There were three epistles written from Rome while Timothy was with Paul. So it's evident that Ephesians was written before Paul wrote to Timothy. He sends Tychicus to Ephesus. He writes to Timothy. He tells Timothy that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And he asks Timothy to come to Rome and to bring Mark. The last three epistles, and, and I haven't really studied them to see if the order they were written in can be determined, but that really is immaterial. The last three epistles. Philippians was written from Rome while Paul was with Timothy. 1 Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, verse 7. And Paul had mentioned his first defense of Christianity into Timothy, and he also explains that in Philippians, after to, in his letter to the Philippians, after Timothy had come to Rome to be with him. Philippians is addressed not from Paul, but it's from Paul and Timothy. That's important, and we'll get to that in a minute. Colossians. Colossians was written while Timothy was with Paul, Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, and it was written from Rome to the Colossians, from Paul and Timothy, and that's important. While Paul was a prisoner, and Aristarchus was still a prisoner along with him, Colossians 4.10. Now Tychicus had gone to Ephesus to deliver that epistle, and then Paul said unto Timothy that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. However, in Colossians, when Timothy's with Paul, we can see that Tychicus had also returned by this time. And we see in Colossians 4.7 that Tychicus would deliver this epistle to the Colossians after Paul writes it. And Paul wrote this epistle while he was in, 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 with Timothy. So Tychicus must have returned to Rome after he delivered the epistle to the Ephesians. And he was there with Paul again while Timothy was there. And this epistle to the Colossians was being written. And Tychicus is getting sent back to Anatolia with the epistle to the Colossians in hand. Finally, Philemon was also written from Rome while Timothy was with Paul. And in the salutation, Luke, Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas are all mentioned as being with Paul, just like in Colossians chapter 4. Luke, Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas are all mentioned there. So Demas, who had forsaken Paul sometime before to Timothy was was written while Paul was in Rome must have at some point returned because now in Colossians and in Philemon he's with Paul and he's with Paul while Timothy is there 
So he must have, even though he forsook Paul, and Paul complained in 2 Timothy that he forsook, forsook him, Damas must have returned. No doubt. With no evidence at all of outside of an interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 4 by the 4th century ecclesiastical writer Eusebius. There's no other evidence. Later Christians have imagined Paul to have been released from his initial imprisonment in Rome and to have been arrested again and written to Timothy during a second imprisonment. And then to have been executed. I don't believe a word of that. I don't believe Eusebius' interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I think it's all hogwash. Reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, I do not find Eusebius' interpretation to be necessarily valid at all, and I dismiss it. I much rather prefer the chronology of Paul's letters, which are in perfect harmony with, with um, Paul's statements in, throughout all of these letters, to be the valid one. If 2 Timothy were written after Paul's second arrest, would Paul find a need to explain the fates of all of those who were with him leading up to his first arrest? I don't think so, but he does that in 2 Timothy. Rather than the writing of 2 Timothy is consistent with Paul's first and only arrest, and his later having joined Paul in Rome, as requested of him in 2 Timothy, and that is when Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written. If in 2 Timothy, Paul informed Timothy of the status of his relationship with many of the men that they had worked with together in the past, and he does so whether Timothy should have known of that status or not. There's a reason for that. Ostensibly, Paul did that so that it would serve as a form of public notice so nobody could complain because of what I'm about to illustrate. When Timothy comes to be with Paul in Rome, all of the surviving epistles which he writes from that time, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, are no longer written from Paul. They're written from Paul and Timothy. Luke was with Paul all this time. Aristarchus was with Paul all this time. Luke and Aristarchus, they were Paul's fellow workers. They were Paul's, well, Aristarchus was Paul's fellow prisoner. They were Paul's colleagues in his ministry. But there are no epistles from Paul and Luke. There are no epistles from Paul and Aristarchus. What we are informed of in all of this, seeing that these last three letters Paul wrote are from Paul and Timothy is that Timothy is being associated by Paul as an equal in his ministry. Therefore, and this is the, the, the Roman tradition that they did with the Caesars and the emperors, when a man was associated with you in your mission, whether you be emperor or evidently apostle, that man is your designated heir. 
Paul writing these last three letters from Paul and Timothy is displaying that Timothy is the man that he hoped would continue his own work. That's why Paul associated himself with Timothy in these last epistles. This is also probably true of the missing epistle to the Laodiceans. Paul had told Timothy in his epistle to him that he expected his end to come soon in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 6 and 7 where he says, For I am already offered and the time of my departure approaches. Having struggled the good struggle, I finished the race, I kept the faith. Paul understands that his ministry is over. Therefore, when Timothy gets to Rome, it's no longer a letter from Paul that he writes. It's a letter from Paul and Timothy that he writes, these last three epistles. Timothy was indeed his chosen successor. Even though Paul was not a pope, he still felt that he had obligations to the assemblies, which he obviously thought that Timothy would carry on. Paul was on an inevitable collision course with the Emperor Nero, a vain man who, like his predecessors, had thought that he himself was a god. From the time of Octavian, the Roman emperors had control over the religion of the people. We discussed this at length, presenting Acts chapter 14. And by their tyranny, but I'm sorry, by their control, their tyranny was more easily maintained. If you control the religion of the people, you control their thoughts, their actions, their motives. As the men whom Paul encountered in Philippi had pronounced, these men, meaning Paul and his company, agitate our city, being Judeans, and they declare customs which are not lawful, for us to receive nor to do, being Romans. Tyrannies, in order to maintain themselves, must also be able to control the religion of the people they rule. In order to maintain order in a multiracial society, tyrannies must absolutely control the religion of the people. So it was in Rome, so it is in America today where the IRS code is used to regulate religion. And the result is that there is no opposition to multiracialism or to tyranny. And the people are too dumb and blind to see it. But as we saw in this presentation, that blindness is from God. It's a punishment because they accept the persons of the wicked. So the wicked rule over them. They've 
become the tail and the wicked become the head. Preaching that Christ is the king and that Christ is risen from the dead and that Christ is the son of God and that Christ is the fullness of the the divinity bodily as he professed in Colossians as well as other aspects of the gospel Paul and the message of Christ which he represented were indeed a threat to the rule of the emperor and the stability of the empire there's no doubt Paul was most likely executed in 62 AD since Luke tells us here at the end of Acts that he stayed at Rome and he stayed in Rome for two years preaching the gospel of the kingdom the year 64 AD was the year of the great fire in Rome and that year was the epitome of the Christian persecutions under Nero but those persecutions had been going on for quite some time already Paul never left Rome. There's absolutely no evidence of that in any of his epistles, except for Eusebius's fast and loose interpretation of a couple of Paul's statements concerning Luke and, and who was with him when he gave his defense in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Eusebius takes Paul's statement that no one stood by him at his first defense, and then takes Paul's statement later in that chapter of 2 Timothy that only Luke is with me to to mean that that means that Paul was released at his first defense because nobody was with him, and now he was arrested again. That's crazy. That That's the only thing Eusebius, Eusebius uses to, to, to make that assumption that he makes. <clears throat> And the truth is that just because Luke was with Paul while he was arrested doesn't necessarily mean that Luke was standing in the palace with Paul when Paul stood before Nero. Eusebius, well, well I got some, he, he was an ancient clown as far as I'm concerned in, in many respects, and that's one of them. You can't infer that Paul was released from Rome and... and um, arrested again and executed later just because of those two statements in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when all the evidence of all the other epistles as I have just laid it out and and hopefully elucidated it clearly shows an entirely different chronology of the writing of the epistles and, and of Paul's mission in Rome and its duration. He was never arrested again. He was never released from Rome and the 29th chapter of Acts is a total fraud that we will discuss shortly. This completes a 34-part exposition on the book of Acts, which was begun in April of last year. I pray that this exposition has been thorough, and while certainly not explaining everything that could possibly be explained, that it nevertheless expounded upon the book of Acts in the light of both scripture and history sufficiently, and that it exhibited proper Christian identity theology 
so that it may stand alone as a comprehensive Christian identity commentary on the book of Acts. Of course, all of these notes are posted at Christagenia.org with all of the podcasts, and they are available freely. Our endeavor later this winter, or perhaps early this spring, is to begin yet another such comprehensive presentation on the epistles of Paul. We hope to do a series on the prophet Micah in the interim. I will start with that within the next couple of weeks. I'm actually going to miss this series on the book of Acts. I wish it were longer. I wish there were more more history in scripture to cover. Evidently, other people wished it was longer too, and those people added their own chapter. Next week, Yahweh willing, I may discuss a few things, and the so-called 29th chapter of Acts, which is definitely a fraud, will be one of them. But next week, I think I'll do something differently. I'm going to have open lines. I'm going to take phone calls. Hopefully, there will be callers. Open lines here next week, Friday night, at Christagenia. I will first probably spend 20 or 30 minutes discussing Acts chapter 29, since it seems to be timely. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther on the Jews, part three with Sword Brethren. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. Call recording has been completed.